Father, if we ever were conscious of our need for Your role, Your work in our lives as a healer, as the one who redeems and restores and turns evil intentions and even evil deeds to good and gives comfort where we cannot find it on our own and gives peace to broken and desperate situations, if we've ever had those needs, we surely have them now. So we commit this time to you in worship as we hear your word. May it find place in our lives. May we not resist what you're telling us, but trust you and find ourselves saved and safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, folks. Wow, it is good to be back. I don't remember the last time I wasn't at this church for two consecutive Sundays. On the positive side of the ledger, you got a break. Now the break's over. I'm back and delighted to be so. Uh, Sharice and I have, well, I've enjoyed, you'd have to ask her, I've enjoyed 25 years of marriage with my wife. Her, as they say at the car dealership, your mileage may vary, right? Um, So we, for a few years, we've been invited Uh, to lead a missionary retreat for some wonderful missionary families in Western Europe. And this year we accepted and had five days in Belgium at this beautiful restored farmhouse where missionaries came from France and Germany and Belgium. And we just sat around and discussed Scripture and told stories. And I think it was a healing time for, for some of them. It was a very encouraging time for our family. We're the odd family that took their kids on the 25th wedding anniversary trip. <laughs> yeah, I've, you know, my decision-making is suspect sometimes, but we, we had a wonderful time because one of my kids loves art, so he was skipping around two great French museums explaining to me what was going on in the picture. I was the classic American tourist saying, wow, that's really big. Is there anything to eat? Uh, <laughs> But generally speaking, it was a wonderful time. We had just a a really encouraging and refreshing time and have been delighted. I still have about 200 emails to go, so if you've tried to get to me, I'm I'm working on it, okay? Um, Just want to thank you for, for your love for our family. Being away has made us even more grateful, more appreciative of what God's doing here. And just seeing the needs of the world, Uh, being in Europe and seeing a picture of things that are to come in the United States in some ways if if we don't turn to God, if we don't live in reverence of Him. Today we're looking at one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's the book of Proverbs. If you'll open your Bible there to Proverbs 29, verse 25, we're going to deal with the topic of fear. It couldn't be any more timely. Because we were traveling and because, blessedly, we only occasionally had internet access, I didn't really find out until they were well over, and I still haven't completely read of all the things that have engulfed our country. Just pure evil and hatred in Charlottesville a bombing in Barcelona that bathes the street in blood when people were just going about their lives. 
police officers, I only saw the headline, but apparently police officers gunned down in cold blood somewhere in Florida. It's a fearful time. And it's a good time to open your heart and your mind and your understanding to God's Word. And Proverbs may seem like a strange place to find comfort in the middle of fear. Because the Proverbs, as their name, as the book, name of the book indicates, are really just wise sayings. It's unlike any other part of the Bible, really. You can read consecutive Proverbs and find that they talk about entirely different things. And sometimes it's not immediately apparent how I'm supposed to read it and what I'm supposed to do about it. The epistles at the end of your New Testament are a lot easier. They're personal letters and they're written to Christians and they're telling you what's true and what you're supposed to do about it. The gospels that tell you the life of Jesus are just kind of walk you alongside him as he lives his life as the Son of God. And Jesus is in the habit of very directly telling you who he is and what he wants and what you should do. Proverbs require a different kind of thinking because they're just wise sayings. If Proverbs were a story, it, was just, it would be a story with three characters. It would be God at the center of the book. And it would be two characters, two human characters, a wise man and a fool. And what Proverbs often invites you to do is just to watch the wise man and the fool live their individual lives and consider the outcome. And it's wisdom literature. In other words, sometimes it doesn't tell you directly what's what you should do about it. It just makes an observation about life. It tells you how life works. And it's up to the reader to wisely discern what meaning the proverb has for him, and especially to see himself at that crossroads between foolishness and wisdom, and asking himself the question, this thing I'm being told about life, where have I seen that that's true? And especially, which side of the story am I living? Am I living like a wise man or a wise woman, or do my behaviors and attitudes reflect the choices of the fool? That's how Proverbs works. One scholar said, Proverbs are like truth concentrate. My kids recently discovered that there's a product in the world called powdered milk. Are you familiar with this? Sad necessity, right? You can take milk and other things and reduce it to powder. You add water and you've got some resemblance of what it once was back again. Proverbs, in a perfect way, is concentrated truth. It doesn't maybe address every single instance in life, but it gives you a wise perspective, a wise observation of how God made the world. It invites you to find yourself in it and walk through that wisdom to enjoy the blessing that it's telling you awaits you if you'll only take a good turn at that fork in the road. So Proverbs 29, verse 25, makes a universal observation about life. It goes right in line with the theme of the book itself. I want to show you, before we read our text, I want to show you the theme of Proverbs. Look, hold your place there, but look back now in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. On the other hand, as a contrast, there are people in the world who we can only call fools who despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord is something that will crop up again and again in your Bible, particularly in the book of Proverbs, and you need to understand what fear of the Lord is. It is not a cringing fear like a small abused child may have when he hears that his angry father has come home. The fear of the Lord is a reverence for God and awe of God. To be so moved, so impressed, so overawed by God that you can't help but love Him, trust Him, and do what He says. That's the fear of the Lord. It is to be so impressed, so taken with who God is and what He's like that of course you're going to trust Him. Of course you're going to do what He says. And Proverbs says right at the beginning that these wise sayings are given to you to guide you, to let you learn the truth, to increase your understanding, to bless you, to change your character. And the start of that path is this, the fear of the Lord, a reverence for God that leads you to do what He says, an awe of God that leads you to lovingly obey Him is the beginning of knowledge, and you should not be like the fool because he despises wisdom and instruction. That's why right at the end of the book, our passage takes up again this idea of fear and trust, and it brings it right down to the ground level. It steps out into the pavement where we live and says this, Proverbs 29, 25. Would you read this with me, please? Scripture says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This is how the wisdom literature of the Bible works. In two lines, it tells you a concentrated truth. There is a way to live where you're afraid of man, you're afraid of people, you're afraid of others. And Proverbs says every time you live in fear of other people, man being mankind, humanity, the community of human beings around you, the fear of man always has something bad for you. That fear of the opinion, the verdict of others, always lays a snare. In other words, it's a trap for you. But you don't have to live that way. Whoever trusts the Lord is not trapped, but safe. The opposite of snared, the opposite of captured. Read it again with me a couple more times and you'll have a Bible memory verse on your way home. Ready? The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Once more and you've got it. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. Now, this is 3,000 years old, and it couldn't be any more timely than the story that just broke on Twitter. Don't check, but something is breaking on Twitter right now. And that's part of the problem, really. One of the axioms of the, new, of the local news business is if it bleeds, it leads. And nobody ever goes to the airwaves to tell you that everything is fine. You're never going to see a firefighter standing in front of my house saying, I'm, front of, I'm standing here in front of the Garner home and everything's great. Kids are home safe. Bruce had a nice dinner. Just wanted to let you know. News doesn't work that way. What news does is it takes you to the scene of the tears, of the blood, of the tragedy, of the trouble, of the threat. And in 24-7, 
in a 24-7 news cycle with smartphones in our pockets, it never, ever, 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 ever stops. Continuous threats, continuous troubles, continuous insults, continuous evil on parade through your screen all the time, and Americans consequently are afraid. Nearby Chapman University for the last several years has conducted a scientific survey of what Americans are afraid of. I'd like to invite you into that experiment just a little bit, because you live here. What are we afraid of? Can you imagine what came up in the survey? Terrorism. It's right up there. The fear of terroristic violence, of hatred from some group for some reason, whether it's the color of skin or a religious ideology. Even though it's not rational in terms of the sheer statistical probability that ever anything will happen to you individually, Americans have learned to live in an atmosphere of fear with a pit in their stomach that harm will come to them for no good reason except that people are evil. Another fear right at the top of the list is fear of government. Americans say they're specifically afraid that the people who govern over us will grow corrupted or express their corruption and do harm to the rest of us from their position of trust and power. Americans also said, I'm afraid of running out of money. Does that one make sense to you? Only every paycheck, right? I wonder if I'll run out of money before I run out of month, many people say. That's just the way we've grown accustomed to living. And here, from 3,000 years ago, comes concentrated truth to deliver this simple observation about life from God Himself who made the world and everything in it. People can't help but live in fear because the world is filled with danger, but the fear of man lays a snare. Every time you live in fear of people, you will be walking into a trap. On the other hand, whoever trusts the Lord is safe. And Proverbs just makes this general observation and then invites the reader to think it over and see where it shows up in life in general and in his or her life individually. So, a couple of weeks ago, I gave careful thought to what it looks like to be in living in fear of people. Here's some things I think are symptomatic of fearing people. First of all, you agonize over the opinion of others. Does that resonate with anybody or is it just me? And we've got this thing called the internet, and within the internet, we've got this thing called social media. You tell me, do you think social media is helping or hurting us being afraid of the opinion of other people? Hurting. The intense amount of agony that is put into making the post look good and having the right hashtag and then checking to see who's liked it. And if they haven't liked it within 22 minutes, wondering if we're friends anymore, are you still following me? Are we still friends? What? Oh, my goodness. She unfollowed me. What now? Do I text her? Do we talk? Do we let the relationship slowly die? Do I ghost this person because they unfollowed me? What's going on? And there's just this quiet torture around something that was meant to be something that would build relationships. That's just one little symptom. 
Almost everybody lives in agony over the opinion of somebody. Their spouse, their kids. Talked to half a dozen people over the last two weeks that have told me as parents, as we talked about parenting for a couple of weeks, just how hard it is for them to make principled, wise parenting decisions knowing that their 12-year-old's not going to like it. And here you've got the strange phenomenon of a 35-year-old man living in fear of the opinion of a 12-year-old girl. It happens. You agonize over the opinion of other people. It's no way to live. Because the fear of man, in that case, starts steering your choices. And it affects you in so many different ways. If you're single, you live continually in the agony of dating the right kind of people. Maybe they need to look good, look a certain way on social media. If you're married, you're wondering how your spouse, your marriage, your house, your stuff is comparing to the person next door. So we've got this almost American phenomenon that we've even named. It's called keeping up with the Joneses. Whoever the Joneses are, they're doing great, right? Because we're all trying to keep up with them. Joneses are crushing it. So we've created this strange culture based purely on the opinion of others, which is rooted in the fear of man, in which we spend money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And so many people live that way, and Proverbs warns, whether it's your parents or your in-laws or your kids or your co-workers or simply your social media following, if you live in fear of them, if you agonize over the opinion that they have of you, that is a snare for you. And we have to deal with it because this phenomenon is so real, psychologists have actually named an effect called the spotlight effect. The spotlight effect is something where you think that when you mess up, everybody sees it and everybody cares. Like recently I spilled, I've got, a, I've got a real problem with coffee. It's the only thing I spill, but I spill it all the time. I have a really hard time drinking a cup of coffee without getting some part of it on me. If you notice how often I wear black on the weekends, that's why, okay? because I have to have coffee before I do this, but there's a 50-50 chance that I'm going to spill a great deal of it on myself, and black helps hide it. And that's me succumbing to the spotlight effect, which says if you've got a stain or you've stumbled or you've done something, you feel spotlighted and you feel that everybody saw it and everybody's laughing. Have you lived through this? And they've studied it and they've done actual surveys saying, did you notice this person messing up? And hardly anybody does. Do you know why? you know why they didn't notice that you messed up? Because they're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves in their own spotlight. We start with our self-awareness and filter everything in our life through it. And 3,000 years ago, God, with the wisdom of having man, made man himself and knowing how sin broke us, said that kind of fear, that fear of man sets a trap for you, lays a snare. Here's another symptom. You avoid, you sacrifice the truth, rather, to avoid conflict. This is where we are as disciples of Jesus in the 21st century. Please know this. The Bible may not answer every question you may ask of it. You may have some strange 
question like, will my pet be in heaven? Okay? Or some little doctrinal peculiarity that you'd really like to know? The Bible may or may not address those kinds of questions, but God, who is the author of life, who spoke the universe into existence, who made you as the crown of His creation, He knows exactly how He wants you to live. He hasn't provided rules for everything, but He has spoken with wisdom and love to everything that governs our lives and everything that matters in it. Money, sex, recreation, gender, war, peace, Family, friendship, entertainment, it's all covered. It's all addressed. And God has spoken, contrary to postmodern opinions, God has spoken clearly on all of these matters. And the current temptation in America in the 21st century is to hear that truth but to sacrifice it just because you're afraid that somebody will be upset that you have the temerity to believe it and live it. And you can't do that if you're going to live in the wisdom and in the safety of the Lord. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. You think our days are dark, theirs were much darker. There was just a small gathering of believers in the major city of Ephesus, a city legendary for its idolatry, for its drunkenness, for its sexual immorality. And in that dark place, God placed a little group of believers, a congregation, and Paul wrote to them and said this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. We are to be speaking the truth in love so that, Paul says, we grow up. Learning to speak the truth in love is part of growing up into maturity of Jesus because you'll never be a mature follower of Jesus if you're not willing to see and understand the world the way Jesus does and actually say so from time to time. So Christians jump from one ditch to the other. It says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. And some people speak the truth and ignore the love part. Have you noticed? They scream angrily things they know are true. Other people confuse this. They have this confusing idea. They think, if I am to be loving, I can't be truthful. So I can't speak the truth to this situation. I can't talk to have this difficult conversation with my friend because that would be unloving. And Paul says, no, speak the truth, just do it. Lovingly, in that way, you grow up into the head who is Christ. A third symptom is this. Ultimately, you do what they want, not what God says. God loved you so very much that He was willing to speak authoritatively, give a verifiable, historically reliable record of who He is, And He invites you for your own good because He loves you to know who He is, to know the truth He has made, and to walk in it. This became apparent when Moses spoke to Israel way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me tell you the setting. Moses has given the best part of his life 40 difficult years in the desert, but right at the end, tired by the weariness, wearied by these stubborn, stiff-necked, 
rebellious people and all the trouble he had endured with the Israelites as one generation died and the next generation rose and grew up. He disrespected God, and God told him, that's going to cost you. You're going to die on the wrong side of the river. You'll see the land, I promised. You'll never be in it. So we've got this long, beautiful book. If you've never read it, I strongly recommend it to you, called Deuteronomy. And it has that strange name because the word means that it's a second giving of the law. What Moses is doing is preaching, teaching, reviewing, emphasizing, pleading, threatening with the people. This is what God told us. Now get to it so you don't suffer like your fathers did. He knows he's going to die on the wrong side of the river. He wants to be crystal clear on what God has said. He knows they face all kinds of pressure, including military opposition and people that want to kill them on the other side of the river. So he wants to tell them one last time, this is who God actually is. And this is what he wants. Listen, Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Well, you have my attention. What is it that God actually wants? Here it is. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? There's that concept again. Remember, we've talked about this. This is a reverence and awe of God that leads you to obey Him no matter how difficult it may be. Your mom, your dad, your best friend, your fraternity, your sorority, your goofy friends, they have an opinion. They're pushing one way, but you have so much respect and reverence and awe of God that you're going to do what He wants instead. That is the fear of the Lord. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all His ways, to love Him. Don't miss that. This is an awe and a reverence that leads to love. If you have awe of someone, if you respect them, if you admire them, love is natural. This isn't a fearful compliance. This is a wholehearted obedience because God is so good. To walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. And he does this, don't miss the last phrase, why does God tell us how to live? For our good. And sometimes we're just too, we're just too immature. We're just too ignorant. We're just too short-sighted to actually know what is good for us. It doesn't necessarily make us evil. It just makes us frail and human. When I think back over my life, especially in my late teens and, and 20s, all the prayers that I laid before God that I am now so grateful that He didn't answer. At times, I was like a five-year-old asking for a power tool. I want it. Give me the chainsaw. No, not giving you the chainsaw. But I want it. No, you're not going to have it. Why? Because He loves me. This fear of the Lord, this reverence for God instead of the fear of man is always leads ultimately to obedience. It leads to trusting Him and it leads to blessing. It's for your good. And as always, Jesus is our best and maximum example. 
In John chapter 2, we're transported into the early days of the ministry of Jesus. Things are beginning to happen. Things are going well. People are coming to Jesus. They're praising Him. It's going great. If Jesus lived today, we would say that the Jesus movement had gone viral. Okay? And you would see things like hashtag Jesus in Cana. And Jesus at this wedding, and it was the most spectacular time. He turned water into wine. Everybody was so happy. I can't believe it. Were you there? And, you know, it's, it's a wedding for 500, and 5,000 people claimed to be there because it was such a great time. But John has the unique perspective as the gospel writer who is closest to Jesus, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John will give you the interior life of Jesus sometimes. He'll kind of give you the director's cut and tell you quietly what Jesus is actually thinking while he does this. Mark just shows you what Jesus does. John actually shows you what Jesus thinks as he does it. And here's what's happening in those heady, exciting days of the ministry taking off. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Now, don't get confused here. Jesus loved people. He loved everyone. He even loved people who hated Him, a spectacular example for modern-day disciples. To actually love and speak with kindness and speak with truth and listen with compassion to people who actually dislike you. Jesus loved people, but John says Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them. How can you love people without entrusting yourself to them because it says he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You ever have anybody take you aside and explain to you that this person you think is so great is actually a snake in the grass? You ever have those conversations? Nobody ever needed to do that for Jesus. Jesus was never actually surprised by any evil thing that came out of anyone's heart. He knew from the very beginning what people are and what we're capable of. So he loved them, but he did not entrust himself to them. In other words, he didn't stake his worth, his decisions, his day-to-day -day obedience to God. People had no factor in it. Why? Because Jesus had a great fear and love for his Father. And when temptations and pressures of all kind, literally from the devil himself and from his own disciples, when they pressured him another way, when they enticed him or appealed to him or threatened him or tempted him, wherever it came from, whoever else was speaking, Jesus did not entrust himself to those people because he had a great fear, reverence, love for his Father. He's our example. He's our Savior. And the stakes couldn't possibly be any higher. In John chapter 12, now fully developed in the ministry of Jesus, shortly before he's going to be arrested and killed, in John's telling of the story, we're told of a tragic decision that people made about Jesus simply because they were so afraid of other people. This happened 2,000 years ago, and it's still happening today. In fact, at the end of this service, when I invite all of you to make sure of your faith in Christ, it's very possible that some of you will live this battle again. And you'll be so concerned, so worried about publicly identifying with Jesus, trusting Him as your Savior, 
or taking a step of obedience like baptism, which so many Christians are reluctant to get into because that's kind of when you put the t-shirt on and you claim him and you own him. You identify yourself publicly with him. There's such a fear of man in so many disciples of Jesus or potential disciples of Jesus that they make the same tragic mistake we're told about here. Look, John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. That's huge. The peak of Israel's power is starting to believe in Jesus that there was a problem, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. This is foolishness. They're standing in front of the Son of God who says and does things that only God can do. But at the crucial moment to identify themselves publicly as his disciples, they count the social costs. They know that the machinery will push them out of the synagogue. Nobody will speak to their wives. Their income will go down. They will suffer socially and economically for publicly identifying with Jesus. And they say, sorry, not doing it. My mother-in-law would really be disappointed. My kids would be embarrassed at school. And John tells you exactly what the problem is. They would not be put out of the synagogue. Here's the problem. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's huge. Listen, Christian, the last part of that verse is radical. The last part of that verse means that there are things you can do to receive glory from God. In other words, you can live your life in a way that shows trust in God instead of fear of man, and you can receive from God praise. You can receive the applause of heaven. You can have look God look down from heaven and say, that's my kid. Nobody goes with her, but she goes because she loves and trusts me. Every invited, everybody invited her, that young thing, to stay put and to not go, but she's going where I told her because she has such awe and love and trust in me. She's going anyway. These people made a fatal choice. They love the glory and the, the applause that comes from people rather than the glory, the applause, the praise of God Himself, and that's always the crossroad you're going to be standing at. That has really practical implications. If you've put off baptism, stop. Stop putting it off. If it's going to create trouble in your family, and believe me, having grown up in Mexico, I understand that. One of the young men in our church in Mexico got baptized and went home to discover all of his belongings packed on the street. His family put him out that night. Now, let me speed forward to the day of his death when he goes to heaven. You think he'll be disappointed with his choice? Not for a moment. He'll have the applause of heaven. Whatever it is that you've been putting off in your obedience to Jesus, you're choosing at that moment, and I've done it too. This is a, not as much a confessional as a sermon. I live with continually battle the fear of man. But Proverbs says, anytime I succumb to the fear of man, I'm walking into a trap. If instead I trust God, I'll be safe. Safe now, maybe, and safe now eternally for sure. 
The choice, in other words, is always between pleasing God and pleasing people. That's the crossroads you're standing at, always. Whose opinion, whose value, whose praise means more to you? Let me give you a final practical for instance. Because Americans say they're so afraid of running out of money. And that's a real thing. Something's going on because people who study these things say that even as people who profess to be Christians grow wealthier and have more, as a group we give less and less. Why is that? Fear. If I give, if I'm generous, there won't be enough left for me. You know, the New Testament spoke about that particular fear very clearly 2,000 years ago in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. It's one of the strongest verses in the New Testament. Let me read it with you. Hebrews 13, verse 5. It says, keep your life free from love of money. How are we doing on that in Orange County? Just looking around, would you say that generally we're living, keeping our lives free from the love of money? What do you think? Now mark what the Bible says. It's not saying you can't have any of it. It just says that however much you have, you shouldn't love it. See, you can be broke and love money. You can be quite wealthy and not love it at all. I've known people who were dirt poor, who loved more money more than life, and I've known wealthy people who had stacks of it, who were very quick to give it away, and they didn't entrust themselves to money because they had such love and trust for God. It's not a matter of amount, it's a matter of love, of attitude toward your possessions. Then it gets worse for Orange County. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. How are we doing on that one? And we've built the most remarkable marketing machine in the history of mankind to tell you that what you just bought isn't good enough. You ever lamented buying an iPhone because they came out with a new one six weeks later? (laughs) And you went from enthralled to disappointed because now this one has four cameras. I don't know what I would do with four cameras, but it has four cameras. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Here's why. For He, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's back to the book of Deuteronomy. The author of Hebrews is quoting Moses' sermon again. You can keep your life free. In other words, it's going to be an effort. You're going to have to continually do that. But you can live in a way that shows that you don't love money. You can actually be content with the great amount of things or the few things you have now for this reason. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, we can confidently say, read the last part with me, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See that dynamic? I may not have much, but I can be content because God has made a promise to me and I will not be afraid of people. Because I have the Lord as my helper, I will not fear. I will not be afraid. In fact, I can boldly ask, what can man do to me? And the expected answer is nothing. Not if God is my helper. Well, I call this the strongest, one of the strongest verses in the New Testament because of what it says in verse 5. 
Now, endure a little grammar with me. Please do not turn off your Bible on your cell phone, much less your attention, because I'm going to give you a little bit of grammar. And you will say, along with the great majority of us, I hated grammar in English. And now you're going to talk about the grammar of the Bible? Wake me when you're done, please. Please don't do that, okay? I promise this is worth it. In English grammar, we have this rule that we've created that you shouldn't use a double negative. So you shouldn't say, for instance, I don't have no money, right? Because that's both a sad condition and terrible grammar. <laughs> In our world, if you, say some, if you say a double negative, you're actually kind of maybe saying that it's a positive, right? Like math. So if I don't have no money, are you telling me you actually have money or... Did you just skip that day in school? What's going on? Double negatives are forbidden in English grammar. Here's the point. In Greek, they're not. When you really wanted to bear down and say no, you could pile up negative words in Greek. And the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers, but it was written in Greek, and here's how it reads. It has not one but five negatives in this little verse. So if I read it very dynamically and very close to the actual language, it sounds like this. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never, never leave you. I will never, ever, under any circumstances, forsake you. It's the strongest negation in the entire Bible that I've been able to find. Why? Because God knows how prone his kids, including me, are to live in fear of financial issues. And the God who gave His own Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, who literally gave the life of deity so that you could be in His family, He will certainly take care of you. If He was willing to live and die in your place so that you could enjoy Him forever in heaven someday, He will certainly not be too weak or too unloving to keep you out of trouble so that you have what you need. Maybe never all that you would like, but He is the one who has promised, I will never, ever leave you. No, I will never, ever under any circumstances forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. What am I trying to tell you? I'll end where I began. You would do well to consider in what areas fear of people steers your life. You may agonize over their opinions. You may grow quiet when the truth, lovingly spoken, might actually spare someone hell hell on earth, and judgment from God later. You may consider what fear looks like in your parenting, in your workplace. Students, you'll need to seriously consider what the fear of peer pressure and being in the right group that doesn't walk in step with Jesus, how that might be affecting your attitude and your choices. People who are single, there may not be a more difficult season of life than being single and no longer wanting to be. You may want to consider what it looks like in that season to trust the Lord and that He knows best and that His timing and His choices and His love for you are the best thing for you rather than this person that seems so appealing that would seem to solve all of your problems and bring you so much joy. 
for parents, for singles, for marrieds, for empty nesters, for people who have lost their spouses and suffered the death of children. It looks different in every season of life. But I have good news for you across all of life in every instance and in every season. Proverbs warns, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So I invite you to safety because absolutely for sure, trusting God may be scary, but trusting God will always keep you free and safe. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that You would examine our hearts and deal with us individually. People have been from up here, Lord, wonderfully attentive and responsive, Lord, to Your Word. But if You don't bring them across the line and lead them to actual commitments of obedience, it'll all be for naught. So I pray that in the next couple of minutes You would give everyone light on the path so that they will step out of fear of people and step into trust and love for you. Could I ask you, if you're not absolutely certain of your relationship with God, if you've been hoping, but you're just not absolutely certain if God called you to account for your life, that you'd be okay, that you'd be forgiven, that you'd be in heaven. Maybe you've been mulling it over, maybe you've been waiting to learn more, But with all that wondering and studying and listening, you're just not sure. Could I invite you right now in the name and in the grace of Jesus to make sure to look past your fears and to walk right through them and say, Jesus, I believe. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm trusting you today as my Savior. You can pray to Him just like that. The best prayer in the world will be meaningless if it doesn't mean that you're personally putting your trust in Him. If you do that, the words don't really really matter, not nearly as much as placing your individual trust in Jesus to say, I understand, I've sinned, I've fallen very short of your glory, I've blown it in a lot of different ways, I cannot save myself. Jesus, you save me instead. Be my Savior, be my boss. That's the invitation. What has kept you from it, maybe, is the fear of man, what others will think if you become one of those who actually publicly identifies with Jesus, a disciple, a Christian. Maybe you're already following Jesus, but when you think about your marriage, your friendships, your life as a single, your life as a spouse, as a worker, as a student, You feel that peer pressure, and honestly, people get the upper hand far more than God does in your life. Could I invite you to talk to your Heavenly Father about that and ask for His help and strength to trust Him the next time those pressures come against you? Whatever your decision is, especially if you're in need of trusting Jesus as Savior, take a moment, find that card in the bulletin, and let us know either what you're deciding or what you have questions about, we'd be delighted as a pastoral staff to take the time you need so that you can be sure of your relationship and your next steps with God. Father, this offering, these decisions that are being made right now, first I pray for your grace and your power to help everyone here according to their need take their next step with you. Some into your family perhaps, 
some in their next step of a really good walk with you, but they're afraid of things. Help them, Lord, trust you and find themselves safe. This offering, Lord, is one expression that we don't fear people, we trust you. Receive, Lord, from generous people and from people who also, Lord, in their generosity are very afraid to give. Receive these gifts. Make us wise stewards of them. And through our giving, may the love and the name of Jesus be spread evermore into this sin-wrecked, sin-insane world. In Jesus' name, we give you these commitments and these offerings. Amen.